If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For today's podcast, we've got an interview with the author Henry Hemming. Henry's latest book, Our Man in New York, delves into MI6's covert campaign to bring the United States into the Second World War. Our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans, met Henry in London to find out more. What can you tell us about um, the situation in America at the time when your book opens? The situation is looking, it's looking bleak for Britain. The book begins in June 1940. So it's in the, the days after Dunkirk. And Britain is obviously in a perilous situation. But meanwhile, over in America, there are polls suggesting that only 8% 8% of the American people think that now is the time for America to come into the war. And from a, a historical distance, you might think, so what? Why does that really matter? And of course, for Britain, most of its supplies are now coming from America. And within America, American public opinion does have an impact on just how many supplies and how regular the supply flow will be to Britain. In other words, Britain's ability to keep fighting, to keep waging war against Nazi Germany, depends to a certain extent on what ordinary American citizens think and feel about the war. And it's not just them thinking, is Germany a threat? It's also them thinking, do we need to save Britain? And I mean, when researching the book, this was in some ways one of the, sort of the trickiest things to, to fathom, to understand just the depth of loathing for Britain in some parts of America and, and amongst some parts of the American population. So you've got this, this situation that is, as I say, deeply worrying for the British government. They need to do something about it. And on June the 11th, there's a ship that sets sail from Liverpool. On board are a series of foreign office employees. There are workmen employed by the government. There are a series of evacuees. But there's also a British spy. And he's called Bill Stevenson. And he's the new head of station for MI6 in America. And he has been sent out to America as a first-time spy master. So he's never done this before. And what's amazing is that while this, this ship is crossing the Atlantic and German forces are still advancing deeper into France, Bill Stevenson's job changes. So he sets off thinking he's just in charge of MI6 for North America. But by the time he arrives in late June 1940, it turns out he's also in charge of an influence campaign to change the way American people think about going to war. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating campaign and a fascinating account. Um, and I wonder if we could start with Bill Stevenson, the, the man at the centre of your um, book, because he is such a fascinating individual. Yeah. And uh, can we talk about how he got involved with MI6? Because I think that's a really, really interesting part of the story. Yeah, of course. And he is the, um, the book's called Our Man in New York. He is that, that man in New York. He, um, he has one of the most unusual routes into MI6 that I've ever read about. So he is a Canadian. He is someone who grew up in the red light district of Winnipeg, a remote town in the middle of Canada. And he, his dad died when he was very young. He was abandoned by his mum when he was about age four. And he moves to London in, in, the, in his early 20s. And he completely reinvents his past. So he starts talking about this very genteel middle class upbringing. And he just doesn't like to talk about it, if possible. And he does really well in London. So he started afresh. He goes into radio. He becomes a millionaire. And then he launches his own investment fund. He becomes even richer. But I guess like a lot of people who end up being very rich, they hanker after something else. And it's quite clear from the mid-1930s that Bill Stevenson, deep down, he's really intrigued by the world of intelligence. And he has a network of just friends and informants over Europe who, who pass some commercial information that he uses to help make his, his business decisions. But he then does this very strange thing in about 1938. He gives this informal network of, as I say, friends and acquaintances, he gives it a name. He calls it the British Industrial Secret Service, which of course it's not. It's got absolutely no connection to the British government. It's not official in any way. And I'm almost certain this was his way of trying to pique the curiosity of the actual British intelligence services. And it works. Soon after, MI6 have an interview with Bill Stevenson. They like the look of him. They like the sound of his network. And they offer to start using his network and to provide some funding to this network. This is around the time of the start of the war, so summer of 1939. So Bill Stevenson is, is excited, he's, um, he's got his foot in the door. But quite quickly, the excitement of being involved in MI6 wears off. He realizes it's not what it all cracked up to be. And this network, which he had going, um, ceases to be quite so productive. But then, in April 1940, he's given this unusual task. And this is what changes his life. This is what gets him into the story that I'm telling. He's told to go to America. He's told to go to Washington. He's told to meet J. Edgar Hoover. And he's got to start a channel of communication between the FBI, of which Hoover is the head, and MI6, of which he has this small-time um, association. And he goes over, he does this, he does it really well, he does it very effectively and quickly. And on the back of this, the head of MI6 does something very unusual. He decides this guy who has no experience of doing anything like this should in fact be running all MI6 operations in America. So that really is how it starts. You describe him in the book as, as a bit of a ma maverick. You say he was a flawed individual and you certainly see that as the war progresses, um, his role very much changes. But can we, um, at the very start of the war, talk about um, the initial office that he establishes in New York? Yes. So he arrives in New York, it's, it's June 1940, and he's shown to the existing MI6 office, but he does not like the look of it. It is, what I've read about it, it was a very gloomy suite of rooms in downtown Manhattan. And I mentioned earlier that Stevenson is, is rich. And, um, and it's funny because until then, he, he's someone who very much would always live within his means. He was quite frugal, didn't like to, to show off his money. 
But something about moving to New York, I don't know if it was just the atmosphere of the city or, or, or something else, he becomes a spendthrift. He starts just throwing money around. So he moves as MI6 staff into the most glamorous apartment in New York. It's this penthouse suite high above Central Park. It's in a place called Hampshire House. And it's so big that he also uses it as, as his home. So he's now operating MI6 out of this um, luxurious place, which looks like the set for a Fred Astaire musical. It's, um, it was so glamorous that it featured an issue of House and Garden. And I really enjoyed reading all of the, uh, the descriptions of all the furnishings. Uh, so he moves them to there. He starts bringing in new technology, starts bringing in new recruits. But he also starts bringing in a new attitude. And there was a really interesting interview with somebody who worked under him at the time. Many years later, he was interviewed. And he talked about it. He said there was this moment when this little Canadian fellow arrived, because Stevenson was quite short and Canadian. And, uh, and very early on, Stevenson overheard some MI6 staff talking about the Americans in general and saying they're, um, you know, they're all quite rich, they're a bunch of salesmen, we don't really like them. And Stevenson interrupts and says, that's bullshit. They're our friends, we have to work with them. That's the only way we're going to win the war. And as I say in the book, you can imagine just the silence that would have followed that moment. Here's this guy who comes in, he speaks a bit funny, he's not like the other MI6 staff, and suddenly he's swearing at them, he's telling them they've got it completely wrong. But he was, I would argue, correct, that this, this attitudinal shift was perhaps the greatest uh, innovation that he, he brings in in that first, that first few months, and it's crucial. And from that moment on, the office begins to have a different attitude towards collaborating with Americans, reaching out, finding sympathizers and, and people who could become, dare I say, agents of influence. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that, that shift in approach and the tactics that they use in a little while. But um, I wonder if we could also talk um, about the other side of the great debate, because your book explores in great detail the um, isolationist advocates um, very prominent is Charles Lindbergh, and you've got the America First movement. What can you tell tell our listeners about what's going on with, with that side of things? When Stevenson arrives, there is a, a weight of opposition to the idea of going to war. And it's not just people when they're polled saying, oh, I don't like the sound of it. There are organizations, there are individuals who are speaking against going to war. And the most prominent of these is Charles Lindbergh who is another fascinating, flawed character. There's a lot to say about him. He was, he, he first shot to fame in, uh, in the late 1920s when he was the first person to fly solo across the Atlantic, unsupported. And, uh, and he's, he then became more of a, a national hero, an icon. I mean, he, he became someone that, that most Americans felt enormous sympathy for in the early 1930s when his eldest son was kidnapped and killed by kidnappers who are trying to get a large ransom for the safe return of his son. So he's a tragic figure, and he's someone who then moves to Europe. He's very interested in what he sees there. He's interested in Nazi Germany. He's taken by Nazi Germany. He's, he likes the order. He likes Hitler. He, there are certainly tenets of fascism that he supports wholeheartedly, but he's a little bit ambiguous about this. He returns to America in 1939, with one objective, and that is to keep America out of the war. He does not want to see America going to war with Nazi Germany. And it's important to 
just remember historically that there were a lot of Americans who felt that at that time, and it was not a toxic position to have for them, given what they knew. It was not so much supporting Germany in many cases, it was more to do with not wanting to get entangled in another foreign war. There was a, a widespread sense throughout America that American involvement in the First World War had been a great mistake. And what's more, there was a feeling that they'd been tricked, that the British had somehow inveigled them into entering the war. And so a lot of Americans were on guard. They didn't want the same thing to happen again. And of course, this is almost exactly what Bill Stevenson is trying to do. So we've got then, we've got um, Bill Stevenson in New York with this unit, um, with the aims of, of swaying public opinion versus um, Lindbergh and America First. What kind of tactics were they using um, very broadly to kind of sway public opinion? There were, there were four things. The first thing, they, um, they infiltrated pressure groups. So there were authentically American grassroots organizations. And a series of about eight or nine of these groups were infiltrated by the British using agents employed by SOE, Special Operations Executive. And they would usually win over someone who's senior within one of these organizations and start offering them a lot of money. So they started to be subsidized by the British. And that allowed the British to then control roughly what the message was and roughly who they were attacking. So there is this extraordinary moment in April 1941 where this operation really sort of bears fruit. And a lot of them, all at the same time, start attacking Lindbergh and America First. And the effect of that is powerful. If you're reading in the newspapers, not just individuals are doing this, but organizations, you imagine that there's a nationwide shift, when in fact, at that time, there wasn't. So that was one of the things. Another was to use polls. So they had an agent, David Ogilvie, later known as the father of advertising, who was uh, deep inside the Gallup organization. And we know that there's only one question he inserted into a Gallup poll. And I'm confident that he changed at least the wording of other questions during this crucial 1941 period. That was two of them. Third thing they did, and the thing that was most enjoyable to write about in some ways in the book, was they had the pre-internet equivalent of a troll farm. They had in the Rockefeller Center in New York, this enormous office that was churning out what we would call fake news. Some of these stories were authentic, but they'd been stolen or they'd come from a source that couldn't be revealed. Others were just made up. There was um, a raid on, on a, a French coastal port called Burke-sur-Mer, um, which involved a series of brilliant British paratroopers. They landed behind enemy lines. It was so successful, not a single one of them was killed. They managed to destroy a large number of German aircraft. The French villagers who saw this were so inspired that they volunteered on the spot to join the British, and then they all went back on their boats across the English Channel before dawn, and um, it was an enormous success. It was the story that appeared in the Herald Tribune <laughs> in June 1941. Of course, none of this happened. This was just one of the completely invented stories. And I suppose what was amazing reading about it was understanding, first of all, the message discipline. So all of these stories are quite colorful, they're plausible, they're written in, in interesting ways, but they all support fairly consistent themes at different times. Namely, Germany can be beaten, Germany is being beaten, and Germany needs to be beaten for different reasons. So they're using all sorts of different tactics. They have um, tame journalists that they can feed these stories to. They've taken over a news agency, which supplies a whole series of newspapers all over America 
with stories. This news agency had been subsidized by the British. They've got their own radio station called WRUL, the largest shortwave radio station in America. And they've got sailors at ports all over the country. They've even got a celebrity astrologer called Louis, who's my, my favorite. He, again, was a paid SOE agent. Apparently, he was paid quite a lot. And he would put into his astrological predictions, um, for example, his feeling that uh, Hitler was going to die very soon, and so on. So that was part of it. But in many ways, the most, I think the, the part which hasn't been written about enough and the part on which I found some really interesting new material was to do with the, the precursor of the CIA. So when Stevenson arrives, there is no centralized intelligence agency whatsoever. You have intelligence departments within other existing government offices, but there's no, there's no central unit that brings it all together. And Stevenson realizes only about six months into this job that if he's really going to achieve his aims, and one of them is, is obviously changing American public opinion. But the other one is provoking Germany into declaring war on America, which is what eventually happens. But he realizes that to do this, there needs to be a different kind of American intelligence agency. And he comes up with the idea, and he works out who it is who's going to run it. And this is a guy called Wild Bill Donovan, which is a good name. Um, Wild Bill to his friends and enemies alike. And to begin with, Donovan is not at all won over to this, but Stevenson persists. He keeps taking him to this nightclub in Manhattan, this fashionable nightclub called the Stork Club. And over martinis, he would persuade Donovan that not only does America need this agency, but it needs Donovan running it. And after about seven months of wooing Donovan, of just of flattering him, of giving him secrets, giving him access to MI6 intelligence, doing everything he possibly can to build him up, not only within his own eyes, but also trying to build him up in the eyes of others in the American government. After all this, in the summer of 41, this new organization comes into being. And this is the precursor of the CIA, this is the COI, the Office of the Coordinator of, uh, of Information. And this unit begins to not only provoke Germany, but it also begins to change the perception of Britain within Washington. And one of the ways this happens is that Stevenson is feeding his intelligence straight in to this American intelligence agency. And this is unprecedented, to have a nationally important intelligence agency that's been penetrated at the very top by a rival nation, in this case, Britain. And so for about four or five months, Stevenson has part control of the precursor of the CIA. And this plays a huge part in not only shifting public opinion, but also provoking Germany into a declaration of war. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And there's this extraordinary moment that's almost like something that's been made up. And just before Lindbergh begins to talk, they all sing the Star Spangled Banner. And it's at this point that the woman at the front of the interventionist's parade, one of the isolationists, runs out and punches the woman to the ground. And at that, all of the people behind her tear into the isolationists. The isolationists fight back in this enormous ruckus. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. 
Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What you mentioned about British figures uh, not wanting to be seen telling America to come into the war, that was a really interesting part of your book for me, was seeing the various ambassadors and their role in in presenting Britain to the American nation. What can you say about the the ambassadors that appear in your book? Yeah, so you've got this really interesting contrast between two British ambassadors. And you've got the first one, Lord Lothian, who is is in position by the time the uh, the war breaks out. And he's someone who, he gets it. He gets how the British come across to most ordinary Americans. In other words, the caricature Englishman is snooty, indecisive, and stiff. And he does everything he can to to fight against that. So he makes a point of, on his his first photo shoot in front of the American press, he makes sure to come in, in a creased suit, not the top hat and tails. And there's this lovely moment, which I think is quite symbolic, there he is in front of the White House being photographed, knowing that hundreds of thousands of Americans will see this picture and begin to make their minds up about the new British ambassador based on this. And he sees a stray kitten and he runs over and grabs the kitten and then stands in front of the White House holding this wretched kitten. And, uh, and that's the photo they all use and it becomes a bigger story. So he, this is an example of him trying to just sell the British as being animal friendly, um, approachable, honest and uh, yeah, not to be feared. But you then have this other ambassador. So Lothian dies. He dies in late 1940. He's a Christian scientist. He had a minor infection, which tragically could have been easily treated, but um, he wouldn't allow that to happen. So he died. He was replaced by Lord Halifax. And Lord Halifax is the exact opposite of Lothian. He is aristocratic in the sense that he comes across as snooty, indecisive and stiff. His first big moment in front of the American press is when he goes to a baseball game. And his one comment to the American press is, do they argue this much always? They don't do that usually in cricket, which I used to play at Eton. Very soon after this, he's handed a hot dog. He looks at the hot dog and asks the person who's given it to him, what's in this? When he hears the answer, he then puts the hot dog down and decides not to eat it. So the photograph that accompanies his launch into the American psyche is that of an abandoned hot dog, which, of course, is a really just 
insulting thing. So, yeah, you have two different versions of how to sell Britain. Lothian gets it right. Halifax gets it wrong. And in some ways, Stevenson realizes once Halifax is in position that he needs to do a lot more. And it's very soon after Halifax appears and starts making these gaffes in the press that Stevenson embarks on this new phase, this more aggressive phase of trying to change American public opinion. You mentioned the word aggressive there, and, and a, a passage that stood out in your book for me was um, a parade uh, um, in mid-1941, um, which pitted against one another interventionist and isolationist groups. What can you tell us about the British role in that? Yeah, so this was the British using some of their pressure groups. And there are a series of them. There were three of these British infiltrated groups that organized this march. And the march was designed to coincide with um, a big demonstration of isolationists. So these are the guys who want to, uh, to keep America out of the war. So they marched through Manhattan, and then eventually they arrived at the place where they knew the isolationists were going to be. And all they needed to do was create a news story. And there are some incredibly vivid accounts of, of what happens next. You have this parade of interventionists walking closer and closer. They're bearing their placards. And they're led by a woman who's never named. And she walks up to this crowd. The crowd is outside a theater inside which Charles Lindbergh is giving a talk. And the talk has been broadcast out into the street. And there's this extraordinary moment that's almost like something that's been made up. It looks like something you'd, you'd see in a film if you imagine it. And just before Lindbergh begins to talk, they all sing the Star Spangled Banner. And it's at this point that the woman at the front of the interventionist's parade reaches the isolationists. And just as they're in the middle of singing the Star Spangled Banner, one of the isolationists runs out and punches the woman to the ground. And at that, all of the people behind her tear into the isolationists. The isolationists fight back and this enormous ruckus ensues with people still singing the Star Spangled Banner. And then three minutes later, it's all over and everyone starts going home. But it's worked in the sense that the news story the next day has nothing to do with what Lindbergh says. It's about this fight. And it's about the isolationists beating up the woman. And, uh, and this is just one of the many things that the British were, were trying to do, trying to change public opinion this way. Yeah, it's really interesting. And you write that it's a masterclass in a masterclass in collaboration, which I think is a really interesting way of putting it. Um, you mentioned Donovan there, and through Donovan, Stevenson obviously has, has access to um, Roosevelt, um, who you know uh, was had that relationship with the president. Um, what can you tell us about Roosevelt's foreign policy at that time, and how Britain was able to influence it? So his foreign policy, I mean, what makes it interesting from a historian's point of view is that he never specifically says, this is my foreign policy. He is deliberately ambiguous and it changes almost from month to month. But during the course of 1941, it is, he is consistent in trying to do everything that he reasonably can to support Britain. This is not what he's saying to the American people. He's trying to present a very different face, but behind the scenes, he's doing a lot. He is risking his own impeachment on several occasions. And the high, the high point of all this, in many ways, comes in late October 1941. And there's this extraordinary moment when Roosevelt stands up on Navy Day. He gives a speech which is heard by tens of millions of Americans and, of course, many more around the world, including, including of course, um, officials in, in Berlin. And he says during this speech that he has in his possession a map. And it's a map of South America. And he's been handed it by his intelligence services. And this map shows Nazi plans to take over 
all of South America. So it actually shows what South America would look like after a successful Nazi conquest. All of the borders have been changed. It's even showing Lufthansa routes, how you can get from Berlin to the different capitals. And he uses this map as proof of Nazi designs to take over South America. And this, of course, is a deeply sensitive subject for Americans. It's something that would inflame their desire to go to war with Germany. This map was completely fake. It was, in fact, produced by the, um, the future head of light entertainment at the BBC, a man called Eric Mashwitz, who's also the composer of A Nightingale Sang in Berkeley Square. He's operating out of a forgery unit up in Toronto in Canada, and he's been told to make this map by Bill Stevenson. And Bill Stevenson, once he has the map, gives it to his friend Wild Bill Donovan, head of the future CIA, who hands it on to the president. And what I found in the book, and this was, I think, easily the most exciting moment research-wise, is the evidence that shows that Roosevelt almost certainly knew it was a forgery. And he almost certainly knew it came from the British. And he used it anyway. And this, um, to me, is one of the best examples of this collaboration between MI6, future CIA, and the White House, combining to shift American public opinion and to piss off Berlin. So by the time of, of Pearl Harbor in December 1941, um, what can you tell us about where public opinion was at, at that stage? So by that stage, it has shifted. And you haven't got to a stage where the entire country is saying, we need to go to war against Germany. But what you do have, and it's a subtle distinction, is that between 75, 80, sometimes 85% of the country say that eventually America needs to go to war with Nazi Germany. And it sounds like a small distinction, but it's, it's a, a big one. I mean, usually for a country to go to war with another, two criteria need to be met. One, most people need to feel there is a need to take on a particular foreign state, but you then also need an inciting incident. There needs to be some kind of diplomatic transgression. And at the start of the war, certainly when Stevenson arrives in the summer of 1940, neither of those criteria have been met. But by early December 1941, so before Pearl Harbor, in the days before Pearl Harbor, one of them has been. Most Americans now understand, they now agree that America has to take on Germany and they're just waiting for the right moment. You already mentioned how Donovan was wooed by MI6 and by Stevenson. Um, can we talk more generally about their, their kind of courting tactics? Because they had plenty of other assets, like um, Vincent Astor comes to mind with, with the book. And what can you tell us about their, their tactics there? Well, it's different from, from person to person. But certainly in the case of Wild Bill, it was mostly flattery. It's, um, I mean, what I also tried to do in writing this was read as many of the books that were popular and of the moment um, in, for 1940s Americans. And the most obvious of these, of course, is the Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And the message of that, to sum it up, if you haven't read it, is that all of us deep, deep down long to feel important. And Bill Donovan, when he first meets Stevenson, feels unimportant, like at no other point in his life, He's just been passed over yet again for the position of war secretary. His daughter, tragically, has died just um, a few months earlier. He's feeling overlooked. He's a grieving father. And suddenly, Stevenson appears. Donovan is, is sent off to London. And in London, at Stevenson's bidding, he is treated like a king. 
he, he meets literally the king and the queen. He meets Churchill. He meets senior cabinet members. He meets the head of the army, the head of the RAF, the head of the Navy. He meets the head of MI6, MI5, everyone. He has a team of people following him around there to answer any question he might have. He's put up at Claridge's. He's driven around in a beautiful car. He feels fantastic. Now, it sounds from a distance really unsubtle. You think, surely, if you were Donovan, you think, they obviously want something from me. They're trying to, to woo me and, and win me over. But it worked. It worked to the extent that Donovan came back from this trip to Britain in the summer of 1940, convinced that Britain could hold out and wanting to help the British. So that's where it begins. And it continues in that vein. I mean, the only other thing to add to it, not only are they just flattering him, they're also trusting him. So again and again, Donovan is given secrets. And the psychology of that, we all understand. If you're given a secret, you feel a tacit bond to the person who's given you that secret. And if they keep pouring secrets onto you, you feel a stronger bond. And every time you choose not to pass on one of those secrets, you're kind of underlining your, your, your faith and your trust in that person. And this is essentially what the British did during this, this year-long wooing. They, um, they trusted him, they uh, made him feel good, and it worked to the extent that he would do most of their bidding. Um, and I think it's really interesting that uh, as well as this wooing that was going on of, of um, the agents of influence, there was also a, a darker aspect, if you like, of what they were carrying out. What can you tell us about the special operations executive that was kind of very covertly established during um, the time in America? So this, um, this begins in January 1941, and, uh, and Stevenson decides to bring in, as you say, the special operations executive into his office. He's got this large office in the Rockefeller Center, and a new wing of it becomes SOE. And we don't have enough evidence to know exactly what went on, but I found three tantalizing scraps of communications between Stevenson in New York and SOE headquarters in London. And they refer to potential assassinations. So on one occasion, Stevenson says, a German-American uh, journalist could be, quote, liquidated. And we don't know what London said, but I've looked up this particular journalist and he, he lived a long and happy life. So I'm guessing um, the mission was aborted. And, and then there are two other occasions where London cables New York calling off an assassination, which had been worked out previously in London. So there is, in short, there's this dramatic shift that during the first, say, eight or nine months of this influence campaign, the British are, they're trying to play by the book. They are cautious, they are conservative. The entire thing is steeped in restraint. And then in April 1941, it all changes. And suddenly you have these references to assassination. And suddenly the British take on this radio station, they take on this news agency, the operation mushrooms. And as far as I can tell, it was Stevenson who decided to get this going. He broke with London to a small extent in order to get things moving because he knew that the only way to change American public opinion was to really take on the American isolationists. And that is what he did. So as a historian delving into someone's history, um, the likes of uh, Bill Stevenson, what did you find out about what happened to this history uh, immediately after the war? And then how, how did it kind of come to light? What did you find out? Yeah, it's, um, it's a really interesting historiography. It begins with a massive cover-up. It begins with everyone, um, agents being moved on to different departments, 
some of Stevenson's agents um, just being transferred over to Wild Bill Donovan's agency. And this all begins to happen in the weeks after Pearl Harbor, where suddenly America is in the war, the main objective has been achieved, and everybody wants to make sure that what the British had done with Donovan and so on does not come to light. So there is this quite frantic cover-up. And in the latter years of the war, Bill Stevenson begins to realize that actually the story of what he did may just be lost. No one will ever really know exactly what happened. So he commissions a history. Commissions a history. One of the people who writes it is Roald Dahl, who is at the time a junior member of the office. Uh, He's one of the four authors of this this largely accurate uh, history, but it's also misleading as histories go in terms of what it leaves out. Um, So there's a lot of airbrushing and um, and there are certainly quite a few things they get wrong. And the tone is, um, it's it's of of its time, shall we say. And and, and the story goes, there are only 20 copies of this book and all the other records from Bill Stevenson's office are destroyed, which I think was probably the case. There are some people who think there might be some hidden somewhere which is suddenly going to come to light, but I don't think there are. The history survived and in the late 1990s it was published. And it's um, it's a fascinating document. But what you also have during the the years leading up to that is a series of memoirs by people who who featured um, in this operation. The one thing that really muddies the water is a particular book that came out in the 80s. It's called A Man Called Intrepid. It sold more than two million copies. It is this peculiar hagiography of Bill Stevenson. I say peculiar just because a lot of it was made up. It was invented. At one point, the American publisher had to reclassify it as fiction. This is <laughs> what I've read. It's not a good moment as a historian when that happens to you. But the problem is this book was, was widely read and it certainly changed the way people thought about Stevenson. Those who knew the truth assumed that he had authorized it and he had allowed this, this fantasy to go out and that he was uh, yeah, involved in the myth-making. Um, but what's been really interesting doing the research is just is finding out what really did happen, being able to put a lot of that myth-making to one side and uh, to establish exactly what this campaign achieved. Uh, and can we talk about your, your own link to Stevenson as mm. well? Because your, your book includes uh, many uh, familiar names, like Ian Fleming, Roald Dahl, you just mentioned, but it also includes your grandparents. What can you tell us about their role? It does. This is um, one of the strangest things about this. I came to this story originally in 2016 when watching the American elections, reading about the Russian influence campaign, and like any historian, thinking back to earlier examples of other campaigns like this. And again and again, I came to what the British did in 1941 in America. But it was only a little bit after that, that I connected what was going on there with this story, this story that I'd heard growing up. And it was about how when my dad was tiny, his life was saved by a man called Bill. And this man called Bill went on to become my dad's godfather and then just disappears. So he never sees him again after the age of about sort of eight. And this was Bill Stevenson. So my grandparents were Canadian and they got to know him in the 1930s. And early on in the research, my dad gave me these these two big boxes stuffed full of um, letters, of diaries, of of, of journalistic cuttings, and also some speeches. My grandmother was a journalist and a campaigner. Um, And the most remarkable thing was to find out that my grandparents were in America in the months leading up to Pearl Harbor, and they were touring American bases. And my grandmother was giving talks 
about the horrors of Nazi Germany because she had lived there for several years and that this was something which had been initiated by Bill Stevenson. So it was um, an exciting moment to, uh, to connect part of family folklore with this subject which I'd been researching. They were two tiny, tiny, tiny parts of this vast nationwide influence campaign. But it, it brought it to life. It was, um, there was something thrilling about it. And also knowing that my dad and aunt were with them. And, uh, and even hearing their stories about that my aunt remembers being on these bases. And I suppose what I hadn't appreciated was just the number of, um, of Americans in the army at that time who were of German ancestry. And she remembers the, um, the kind of play fights that would go on between all of the Americans of German ancestry against all of the Americans of non-German ancestry, basically playing out their own version of the war on these um, military bases in the months before Pearl Harbor. Uh, but yeah, another thrilling thing was just reading some of my grandmother's speeches and uh, imagining her trying to make the case. And, uh, and she had, I mean, her big advantage was that she was Canadian. She had a Canadian accent and, um, and it certainly helps. I think having a British accent, telling a room full of Americans <laughs> you need to come into the war is, um, is a difficult thing to do. But uh, she had that, she had a directness as well, which, um, which many people commented on. So um, yeah, it was, it was exciting. That was Henry Hemming. Henry's book, Our Man in New York, is available now, published by Quercus. He'll also be talking about his new book at our History Weekend events in Winchester and Chester this autumn. You can find out more about that at historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Monday when Orlando Figes will be discussing his latest book, The Europeans. Hey.